This episode is sponsored by Pet Matrix Premium Canine Supplements. Straight Up Dog Talk is super excited to be partnered with Pet Matrix. After exhausting several other pet supplemental brands, I am now seeing the results that I have always been searching for for Toby and Fitz. Pet Matrix supports all three pillars of canine wellness using their cell matrix delivery. It delivers nutrition directly into the cell. If you're looking for a supplement that pairs with nature and science, look no further and get your dog on Pet Matrix today. Welcome to Straight Up Dog Talk, a new kind of podcast where no topic is off limits. We're bringing in experts and owners to have the conversations we should be having as a dog community. Each week, a new guest will share first-hand experiences, educational resources, or professional guidance to help you learn and grow along with your dog. You won't get one perspective here. You'll get them all, because every dog is different and every owner is too. You can follow along on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Straight Up Dog Talk or by visiting www.straightupdogtalk.com. Tune in from any of your favorite podcast platforms. Welcome to Straight Up Dog Talk. We're back again with a new guest. My name is Em, and Josh is here today, too. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about the shelter overpopulation crisis and some hoarding crisis problems as well. We have our guest Madison with us here today. How are you doing, Madison? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm great. Madison is a dog trainer by day and rescue worker and volunteer for all things in the dog world in all of her spare time. So you're really kind of a perfect person to turn to when we need to have these really hard conversations about what's going on in the shelter, the shelter world. Yeah. Yeah. This is a big part of my, of my daily and weekly life. You know, I'm working with client dogs and training them, but then also spending a lot of time partnering with shelters and rescues and, and seeing how providing education, providing information, providing that um, earlier on in the process, how that can impact the overall rescue world, the overall euthanasia rate. That's, that's the end goal is to be euthanizing less dogs. Yeah. And unfortunately, right now, the statistics are really, really terrible. I've looked at a lot of the numbers online. And I know in particular, there's one shelter in California that has euthanized 2,200 dogs already this year, which is just astounding to me that it's, I knew it was a problem. I just didn't know it was that much of a problem. Those numbers have been growing steadily every year with no indication of slowing down, no no laws, no ordinances, no no changes being made to support seeing that slow down. Which is really unfortunate because I feel like this is something that if we worked on as a collective, as a community, we could potentially make some changes in this area that could be beneficial to the rescue community and just as far as spending money on killing dogs, like that's not what we need to be focusing our time and energy on. We need to be focusing on getting them into good homes and safe places instead. Yeah. Unfortunately, it feels like we're playing a pretty twisted game of whack-a-mole these days and we can't keep up. Um, We're literally pouring resources into the same situation. And sometimes the the same dogs, the same Mm -hmm. dogs are having to go through the the whole shelter system 
multiple times, whether it's due to, again, these laws not supporting to prevent hoarding cases, whether it's due to rehoming, resurrendering for behavioral um, for behavior reasons. It's just it's impossible to keep up. And so that that steady that steady increase has grown exponentially in the recent couple of years. And the sad thing is, is that it's happening in shelters that were previously no kill shelters because they just don't have space. And they've been forced into this situation where they have to euthanize dogs that are, you know, have a mild cold or something that's really insignificant that could be taken care of if they had proper veterinary care or a family to take care of them. The actual guidelines in place at many high volume shelters actually list a number of medical reasons to euthanize dogs. Something like allergies could be a reason to euthanize a dog. Um, I think simply just due to allocating resources and it becomes a business decision, which on, you know, on a certain level I get, but that's a life, that's an animal, that's a dog. And that's why I'm fighting for this. That's why I will um, take every opportunity that I can to use the knowledge and the experience that I have to try and make an impact there. And I think there's so much that can be done that people don't realize to actually impact this beyond just adopting, just donating. That That's not the only part of this picture. That's not the only piece of the solution. There's so much more to it because really, if we're going to create sustainable change, we need to change how people are thinking and how what information and what education is available earlier on in the process before we get to crisis. Because right now we're just in triage. Exactly. Exactly. It's 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 absolute crisis mode all the time. And there is right now not any way out of it other than the path that we're currently on, because unfortunately, there's just not enough homes for dogs. Well, and when people want to adopt, far too many people are looking for the perfect dog. And uh, I've had three dogs uh, over the last uh, 13 years. Um, all three were rescues. The first one was uh, a three-year-old Yorkie that was a puppy mill stud dog. Um, had always lived his life in a, in a kennel, in a cage. Had never been out except to breed. Um, had never had a haircut. Had never really had anybody hold him. Um, you know, and I'm sure had uh, had I not come around, you know, that he would not have lasted long. Um, you know, it took a lot of patience with him. My second dog, uh, uh, Odysseus, um, who was also a Yorkie, came from a hoarder house. Um, and he wasn't even fixed. He was five when we got him, and he just got fixed. The, the rescue fixed him before they released him to us as part of the adoption. Um, again, no idea really how to behave. You know, was door dashing throughout his life. Like up until he passed away, like he, he was still door dashing, um, a lot of different behaviors that, you know, not an ideal dog for an ideal house, but there is no such thing as an ideal dog or a perfect dog, especially if you're rescuing, especially if you're rescuing before we get into kind of talking about what we can do to help on the shelter level, let's talk about how we got to where we are right now and what's contributing to this overall problem. 
Yeah, there's a lot that is sort of fed into it. And some of it is, has always been an issue, right? Backyard breeders and puppy mills have been, been an issue, at least for as long as I can remember uh, yeah. in my life. Um, that's something that has injected such a high volume of dogs with 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 zero consideration to health and behavior. And that, to me, is one of the main contributing factors. And I think that those of us that that put our time and energy into rescue struggle is that you cannot support rescue and also get a dog from a puppy mill. You 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 cannot do that. Those two things are not those two things are mutually exclusive. If you support rescue, but you also are enabling the very root of the problem, then you are not supporting rescue. I think that there is a thought of balancing it out. I can go and buy a puppy from a puppy mill to avoid having to spend the money that it would cost to buy from an ethical breeder, which there's a reason it costs more money. And then I'm going to donate to my local my local shelter so I can feel better about it. That's not helping. That's not moving the needle. That is continuing to enable the problem creation, which is the backyard breeders and the puppy mills. They're a huge piece of this. Another piece is the the spay and neuter ordinance, the lack of spay and neuter ordinance um, and or accountability for those that that choose not to alter their dogs. Because I don't think that that every single person needs to alter their dogs. There are plenty of responsible pet parents who choose not to alter their dogs for a variety of reasons. And this is not about them because their dogs are not out there escaping um, or adding to the population crisis. So I think this is when we have dogs that are escaping barriers, dogs that are being left outside unattended for long periods of time, dogs that are dumped or abandoned or already living as a stray. Those numbers regarding an unaltered stray male and how many females can get pregnant, it, it's crazy. And that is, you know, a huge piece of it. Um I, I hear the argument on not altering every dog and every behaviorally sound dog because we want to be creating more behaviorally and physically sound dogs, um, but not when we're in crisis. We can't we 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 can't be having that conversation when we're at this point of crisis. Like I have a great dog from from a shelter who I think is pretty behaviorally sound. He's pretty physically healthy. And I, I've actually had people say to me, man, I wish I wish they hadn't fixed him. I wish they hadn't altered him. So we could, you know, so he could reproduce and make more puppies. And I just, I hear it. I get it. It's not time. Not now. Not when we're in this triage moment. And the laws are changing. People are, people are speaking up. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more about how you can actually try and create change in your local community. But the laws are not changing quickly enough to keep up with the rising population. That's just the truth. Um, and that's how we hit, that's how we hit crisis. And then more recently, the COVID bubble. Um, we 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 did it. We did it. We cleared the shelters. We did it during COVID, and everyone had a dog in their home. And then eighteen months later, that excitement sort of dwindled away, and people went back to their to their lives, and they had this this creature that was suddenly maybe less convenient than when they were home all the time, and maybe is presenting new behaviors because their person is leaving, and for any number of reasons, they were being resurrendered back to shelters at an alarming and devastating rate um, for stupid stuff, for zoomies, right? Like this flawed expectation you were talking about. There is no perfect dog. You can't, you can't get a dog and expect it to be a robot. 
Right. If it's you, a living you, creature. It is a living creature. and That doesn't speak human. <laughs> right. We, we, and we can teach them and we do teach them, but we have put such a strong expectation for them to adapt to a human world. That's almost impossible for them. Um, and then with the, the onslaught of social media, I mm. think feeds into this sort of flawed expectation. All these buzzwords that fly around that is now in the sort of everyday vocabulary of a lot of guardians of calm dog, neutral dog, right? That's what they want. Non-reactive. Non-reactive. We've been going round and round as a community about what is reactive, what is reactivity, and what is natural dog behavior. Is a dog getting excited when they see a squirrel reactivity or just species-specific and species-appropriate behavior? And Mm -hmm. we are, you know, asking them to adapt to a world to which they were not designed to um, sort of work the way that that we work and behave the way that that we behave. um, that flawed expectation has has these dogs being returned, like I said, for for reasons that that to us feel really unfair because it doesn't feel like the dog did anything wrong. It feels like the dog is just being themselves and maybe barking at squirrels or getting the zoomies. Um, right. And that doesn't even account, you know, for the dogs that maybe do have um, more challenging personalities that do have fear, that do have. Uh, past with some type of negative experience that causes them to be slower to trust those dogs take even more to mm, um sorry i totally lost my train of thought that's all good i've actually said to people you probably should have looked at a turtle or a pet rock or a robot (laughs) dog right because i will not take on the goal of i want my dog to not bark I think that's unfair. I think that's unrealistic. I think you got the wrong species. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my my first dog that came from uh, a, a puppy mill and through a rescue didn't bark at all. Uh, and if you really want to sicken yourself, uh, see, look up what puppy mills do to make sure that the dogs don't bark. Um, I learned way too much about puppy mills being a foster or a, a new dog dad for a puppy mill dog uh and it's horrible like if if and it's legal is the other thing yeah like i said the laws are changing but but not fast enough and they're not not being changed maybe clearly enough and they're not being trickled down properly from the national to the state to Mm -hmm. the more local level and we're also seeing these these hoarding cases, these situations that are just in a complete, it just goes against everything that we stand for in rescue. These, these hoarding cases that a lot of them start out as a rescue situation or are being masqueraded as a rescue situation. And sometimes there are, there are more nefarious things going on, um, you know, involving finances and, and greed and sometimes not. Sometimes it's a really sad pathology and Hoarding is, there is a hundred percent recidivism for hoarders. People that hoard will always hoard. They will always have that mentality, that mentality, that pathology. It's really sad. And unfortunately, what we need to be doing in these hoarding cases is helping these individuals get help and um, putting, putting restrictions in place for ownership so that they can no longer own animals because that is the only way for them to not re- to not get back into that cycle because that's that's exactly what happens they pick up they move and they do it again so unfortunately 
in these situations where they're prosecuting individuals instead of helping them rehabilitate, heal, try and put it manageable trying to put things in place to keep this from being repeated, they are punishing, which, gosh, all the parallels we can draw there in training approaches of punishment versus guiding people towards better behaviors, but probably for another episode. Yeah. (laughs) It's hoarding is something that once you experience it, it changes the way that you look at people's and how they live their lives. As a vet tech, one of the veterinarians that I worked for had a mandatory participation with the city, the animal rescue and control. I would say once every three or four months, we would get a call from animal control and they would ask for our assistance and we would go with them to a hoarding case or a puppy mill and we would pull dogs and take them to the clinic and evaluate them. But There was one time that we went to a hoarding house and I will never, ever, ever forget it because it truly is a health condition, a mental health condition. And they have no ability to control this without having the proper resources, healthcare, whatever it is that they need to have. But we're talking, you know, multiple emaciated animals on the property freezers full of deceased animals, a goat, a pig, you know, 32 dogs, 100 cats, and and none of them are spayed and none of them are neutered. And so, you know, half of these cats are pregnant and half of the dogs are pregnant. And so it really, I can see where it is a large contribution to the problem because what happens when we take all of these animals away and now we have all of these more animals on the way and we're just filling up shelters and, or um, shocks the system and yeah. overwhelms the system. I know we aborted dogs before. Sometimes in these hoarding cases, we just had to abort some of the pregnancies because the dogs were in such poor condition that allowing them to have puppies inside the system was even more dangerous than it was to just go ahead and spay the dog and remove the current litter, which is incredibly sad. And it's kind of an awful thing to experience in a clinic. But I also see where it is beneficial. There's no way for, I think, any location to be prepared and be ready for something of this volume to happen. For 50 dogs to need to go through intake at a shelter that Maybe the capacity is 45 dogs, right? That is a complete overwhelm, a complete shock. And it, it just it just becomes unmanageable. And that's where we start to see, I think, this 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 game of whack-a-mole. Like I said, where we just we just can't even keep up because these are just popping up left and right. And God forbid with the situation you know what? I'm not even going down that road. Never mind. Going back to the backyard breeding and the puppy mill situation, I know that there are not a lot of ordinances in place. There's not a lot of laws in place to stop people from contributing to this problem. But what are some ways that you can identify for the listeners as far as recognizing what is a puppy mill versus an ethical breeder? Yeah, I think that that is a really good question. I think I am. Maybe not the best person to be able to give that breakdown. Um, Carly might be able to give you 
a more comprehensive list of what to look for there. But physical conditions, where are the dogs kept, number of litters, health testing, those are all the top things at the front of my mind of that. Those would be present with an ethical breeder and would be completely absent with a puppy mill, backyard breeder. Large-scale puppy mills is going to look a lot more like a hoarding case than Mm -hmm. a breeder. It's going to be kennels on top of kennels. It's going to be dogs in, like, chicken coops and chicken wire and um, pretty dirty, uh, maybe not have as much access to food and water and things like that. Um, Like I said, I think that that's, that's a little bit outside of my world versus being able to identify the ethical rescues versus the ones that are more... operating as a business because there are certainly rescues out there that are really just trying to turn over dogs and they're not too different from puppy mills in their business model. Yeah. And, and also depending on where you live, um, some, uh, uh, humane societies are better than others, but I know here in Iowa, um, there is a yearly list that comes out not just for puppy mills um, and backyard breeders that are uh, have been cited or are on the radar, but also for pet stores that sell um, those puppy mill dogs are on uh, are on a list that you can you can get from the Iowa Humane Society. So it's so, a list of those to avoid. Yes. Yes. And the reason like is because Iowa is always in the top five. For puppy mills because yeah. we have so much farmland and so many unattended and unmonitored areas barns things like that that are really easy to hide a puppy mill situation inside of so i know that our humane society works really really hard to make sure that they are aware of whatever they can be aware of and make sure that it's public knowledge here that's amazing I think that it is also a problem here in Pennsylvania. Um, but again, I think I think a huge problem here is the societal perception of it. And if it if if we continue to see puppy mills and backyard breeders as a way to get a cheap dog and a cheap puppy, this is never going to get better. And the thing is, is that most of the time, if you go to a shelter or a rescue, the cost of a dog is usually much cheaper than it is to go to a backyard breeder, a puppy mill, and sometimes even an ethical breeder most oftentimes, because the adoption fee is much cheaper, usually around $200 around here. And the dog is spayed or neutered and usually fully vaccinated and and all of the things that you need to start your dog off in a healthy way. Whereas if you start with this puppy, you're looking at just the beginning of that expense journey. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think depending on the shelter or rescue, the price to adopt could vary greatly, um, especially if you look into breed-specific rescues. I think that you're going to see prices that might be kind of rivaling the, at least what I see, puppy mill prices here in this part of the country. So just some real quick stats that, that I just looked up as of 2020, there were 10,000 in the United States, 10,000 puppy mills. Uh, They're supposed to be regulated by the USDA, the U S department of agriculture. Only 3000 of them get the, uh, the inspections. That's disheartening. Those stats come from the ASPCA. That's really, that's awful. 
I mean, 10,000 is a terrible number. 3,000 is a fraction of that. But I'm even curious, like, what what is the inspection? What is the check? Why are, why are they not being shut down? How in, in, in what context are they being allowed to remain open? And I've seen in recent news, and I've seen in recent news, um, some controversy of a shelter partnering with some type of puppy mill or backyard breeder. Yeah, that I can see would be a massive, massive problem. Combining those two things, that's just, that's, you're setting off a ticking time bomb right there, combining those two things. Because again, like you said, those things are mutually exclusive. You combine those two things and you're completely contradicting the entire mission of what you're actually trying to accomplish. Rescue. Yeah, it's, it's not, it's not. It's no longer a rescue at that point. Puppy mills exist because they make a ton of money flipping puppies, period. And small rescues that can fly under the radar can sometimes unethically copy and paste that model. And that's what one of the things you need to look out for when when choosing what rescue to adopt from is that you're not, again, enabling a for-profit organization that is trying to line someone's pocket and not reduce overall euthanasia. That has to be the goal. So let's talk about that because you mentioned that before. And since we're on that point now, how do you pick the right rescue? I know like the Humane Society is usually a pretty steady. Everybody knows that they can go to a Humane Society. But when we're talking about a rescue or a foster to rescue situation. What are those things that you need to look for and identify as green flags or red flags? The first thing you need to do is make sure that they are registered as a 501c3. And that is their nonprofit status with the IRS. You can also check and see if there's been any flags or violations. Um, You are going to want to check their public profiles on the socials, check the reviews page on Google. We all know that there's going to be negative reviews here and there, but look for patterns. The next thing you're going to want to do is go visit. See the conditions of where they keep their dogs. If you have the time and the ability, volunteer. That's the best way to get to know how they actually run things and talk to other volunteers. I even suggest volunteering before you would foster with an organization to get a sense of what is the level of support they provide to their fosters. Just spend time there. Walk the dogs. Talk to the people that spend time with the dogs. That is the best way to get to know where their priorities are. A a rescue, red flags that you would look out for would be untreated medical conditions, um, dogs not being kept in proper enclosures, clean enclosures, not having access to food or water. That would be a huge red flag. Not having systems of communication in place between the fosters and the staff. What about intake for foster parents and education of foster parents as far as a rescue goes? Is that something that's usually provided in a legitimate rescue? I think that depends because a lot of a lot of the volunteers are going to come on board as maybe just a general volunteer before they will decide, okay, I'm going to you know, walk the dogs or I want to prepare the meals or I want to do that. So I think that the initial training might be pretty high level. When somebody decides to become a foster, at least in my experience, again, it's a little bit more specific. So they might say, I want to foster a senior dog or I want to foster a puppy or I want to foster a dog that's good with kids and cats. 
I think that if it if it's their first foster experience, they typically have a request. And if they don't, at least again, in my experience, um, rescues and shelters tend to pair them with pretty easy dogs. I, I would not expect a rescue to put a challenging dog in with a first time foster. We would want it to be really successful because and this is a concept in, in dog training as well. We have to make it fun and enjoyable for the human or it's not going to continue. Like, I don't want it to be a one and done. I don't want this to be a nightmare foster situation where they never want to work with us again. If they are respecting their fosters and their volunteers, which they should be because, you know, for smaller rescues, this is how they operate is through the time donation from from the fosters and volunteers. They're really going to be trying to set them up, up for success, meaning that there should be plenty of support. They should have all of the items supplied to them. That includes kennels, bowls, blankets, food, medication, um, vet care should be provided. Now, the level of which uh, the foster parent might have to coordinate varies. You know, some some larger organizations might have a medical coordinator that's going to take care of all that. But fosters should not be financially responsible for their dog's medical, for their foster dog's medical mm. care. That is a red flag. And I've seen that. Um, they also should never feel trapped in that situation. There should always be a backup plan. There should always be a way for them to be able to exit provided, um, you know, it wasn't a situation where maybe the dog was pulled contingent upon that foster. That's kind of a specific situation. But again, if this isn't somebody's first time fostering, they should feel that if a couple of days in, it's not working, that they can return that foster dog. They should feel that they have that support and that they have an exit strategy because it's different from adoption, right? If they wanted to adopt a dog, they would adopt a dog. This is this is fostering. And and I think that rescues need short and long-term fosters. Sometimes a sleepover is life-changing for a dog in a shelter environment. Shelter stress can impact dogs and make them appear almost unadoptable. And then you get them into a foster for a couple of days and it's a different dog. And now we have pictures and videos of them on the couch and with the kids and playing. And it can change the, that dog's future. It can change their outlook, even getting a sleepover for a weekend. So I think it's important that that they have a ton of support when it comes to the fostering and and looking at just the the community. So once you get into a rescue and you're starting to get to know the people, just look at where 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 the community support is. And if it's there, that's a pretty good indication that they're doing something right. And also look at their 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 age and how long they've been doing this. You certainly can um weigh, you know, 10, 15 years of reputable work in the community against somebody that maybe just started last year and doesn't have a whole lot of connections. I'm not saying write them off because there's a lot of amazing people getting started, but I think there's also a lot of people that see, again, an opportunity to create a business and and, and make money and flip puppies. And that is un unfortunately as damaging as supporting the backyard breeders. You mentioned that there are other things that you can do other than fostering dogs or just giving money to a rescue that help. Uh, I noticed you said that you could walk the dogs or you could prepare food. What other kinds of things can people do if they want to get involved with a rescue, but don't have the ability like myself, because I have two dogs, I don't have room for another dog to foster a dog. What are some things that I could do or others who are interested in getting involved could do that would really be beneficial to a rescue? Yeah, this is one of my favorite things to talk about because there's so much that can be done and a lot of it is fun. 
a lot of it is really, really fun for people that love dogs, which obviously we do or we wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> if, if you can't take a dog overnight or for a weekend, you can do an outing. You can go for a hike with a dog, take a dog to a park, get them out of the shelter setting for a half an hour, an hour. Even something like that can be really, really helpful for that dog. There's tons of volunteer opportunities that don't even involve physically interacting with the dog or holding the leash. Now, um, some shelters have a setup where you can do, you can spend time with the dogs without physically having to hold a leash, um, doing engagement at the front of kennels designed to help them maybe decompress and work through some of, work through some of that kennel stress. But there's also enrichment prep. That's something that I think is really important. And the shelters and rescues that implement enrichment programs see the benefits of that. You know, these dogs have very limited worlds while they're in a shelter or rescue environment. So being able to provide more enriching activities for them is so helpful. So this could be prepping um, just snack boxes. And we use Frisbees that we smear peanut butter on and then we carabiner them to the outside of the kennels. So they have to kind of lick. Everything goes quiet for, you know, an hour. You just hear this clap, 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 clap. (laughs) as the frisbees are all getting licked clean um and it lets them work their 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 brains and their noses and letting them shred boxes and um we make sense that we spray out out kind of on their walk path so we're switching up their environment and giving them opportunities to engage with a changing environment because again it's so it's so repetitive and the same for them and that's how they can start to start to lose their minds a little bit right so we want to give them just a little bit more Bring me bringing the world to them. Um, application processing. You, if you are not even able to get there, there are remote opportunities to help them process the applications of volunteers, fosters, adopters. My husband did that when he first moved to this country. He wasn't able to work, so he donated his time remotely and processed applications, calling vets, calling references, checking with landlords to make sure they could even have the animals. There's tons that can be done there, even if you only have a couple hours a week to give. That's something that can help them ensure that they have you know, a good process in place. Um, donations don't have to be money. You can donate old blankets and towels. I just got a whole box of them for my foster and I'm so grateful for that. Um, food, toys, things like that, that maybe are done within your household, but could have a second life for another dog. Um, educate. There are so many opportunities to bring resources to your community there's um, spay and neuter clinics that need hands-on volunteers. Again, a lot of like processing um, paperwork and administrative things. Again, if you're not interested in holding a leash or engaging with the dogs in that way, um, advocate, right? We have to change these laws. We have to change these laws. Look into what your local laws are on, um, you know, hoarding cases, on Spay and neuter ordinances on stray dogs. Look up your local laws. Do they reflect what you believe in regarding animal welfare? So, like, I found out that my community doesn't have a code blue. It means it doesn't matter how cold it is. You can leave your dog out. That's, oh. a, that's, that's a real problem. So what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be finding out who my representative is. And I'm going to be reaching out to them. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out, do you represent what I believe is important? And if not, I'm going to be finding someone that does. And I'm going to be making sure that, that my vote counts. And I'm going to be electing an, a local representative that cares about animal welfare. And I'm going to be consistently reaching out to them a couple of times a year to get some laws changed. Because that's the only way that, that we can do it is we have to, we have to advocate for these animals. They're, they can't do it themselves. We have to speak up. There is a federal 
Animal Cruelty Act. It has not been trickled down properly across our country to the state or local level. And law enforcement can and does use that to say that they can't act in a certain situation. And that's problematic. We need to be able to have things in place so that way when we identify and report um, animal welfare crimes that they are actually acted upon and the laws need, need to be there to support it. Um, and we have to we have to sort of get ahead of that because otherwise we end up in, in response mode and response mode means that dogs die and we have to create laws as as a cause, you know, because of that. And that's not good enough. <laughs> You're right. That's- it's absolutely not good enough. It's not good enough. We, like you said, we have to advocate for animals. Animals don't have a voice. They can't tell us what they want. They can't tell us what they need. They can't tell us why they're stressed out. And having people who are willing to come in and work with these animals and help desensitize them and give them activity and enrichment, I think that that's so incredible. And it would be amazing if we could find a way to truly implement this in every shelter and rescue facility that is legitimate, as well as fixing the laws so that they benefit the rescues and foster situations as well. One of the other things that I kind of want to touch on here is when you go to adopt a dog, what is the best process to go through when you're adopting a dog? I know a lot of people just They go in, they pick a dog because they like the way that it looks, or they think that it's the type of dog that they like, and they take it home. And like you said, it has zoomies, or it has some kind of reactivity, or it doesn't do well with the kids. And then here we are back at the shelter again. So what are some things that people can do to make their rescue a successful situation versus a stressful situation? Yeah, I I think a big piece of it is being more curious and being more inquisitive and asking a lot more questions on the front end before we rush into decision. Walking into a shelter or a rescue, you're going to see cute dogs. <laughs> those puppy eyes are going to hit you and all those hormones are going to be released and, oh, you're going to want that dog. But <laughs> unless you have even started the process of asking yourself, why do I want a dog? What type of dog would fit my life? What type of things would really affect my life in a negative way and make this not a good experience for me? What, you know, what things to avoid? I think that's really important because some people think that they want an active dog because it will help them become an active person. And then what it does is it builds a unfulfilled dog, a frustrated person, and it was all built on a fundamental mismatch from the beginning that that dog was probably never the right fit for that that person and now everyone's suffering and no one's mm-hmm. happy. So I think it's really important to be asking yourself why you want a dog and don't get a dog for the life you want, get a dog for the life that you have because that's just not fair to anyone and it's going to it's going to set everybody up for failure if you are putting those expectations onto a dog to help you create your own behavior change. So if you if you really want a dog that might want to be active and be out sometimes, but still be willing to chill. Don't get a dog that needs multiple hours a day, right? Of like physical and mental, physical and mental exercise. Um, this is where I really just suggest that people go and volunteer and get to know the dogs. If you are thinking about adopting and you're thinking about rescuing, I would suggest that you identify 
Well, I guess there's sort of two paths. If you know that you have a breed or a breed group, or you have a pretty specific idea of what you'd like, you can go down the route of finding a breed-specific rescue. They're smaller, they're harder to come by, um, they're very dependent on their foster system. But if you have an idea of what you want, you can track that down and make that happen. Um, That, again, I think is picking a dog based off of maybe a list versus based off of is it the right match. But I understand that some people are still going to really be um, invested in getting a specific breed of dog. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there are options there within the rescue world. I think the the best path forward to set everyone up for the most success is to first identify the rescuer shelter. And from there, spend time there. Walk the dogs. Get to know the dogs. That That will help by exposing yourself to a wider range of dogs. You will then be able to build a list of the characteristics that do and don't suit you okay, I think I would like a dog within this size and this size. But then you go and you walk and work with big dogs and you're like, okay, I'm actually a big dog person. I didn't realize. Now I know. Maybe (laughs) it's the opposite. Maybe you never knew you'd fall in love with a chihuahua. And there's a good possibility that through the process of volunteering and working with dogs that you might identify a specific dog and say, hey, I'm really connected with this one. I'd like to take them home for a trial or a foster. And I think that that's a great way to ease into it. And so many of these dogs, And I can be like this too. Maybe don't make the best first impression. And it takes a couple of meetings to warm up to them. They're some of the best dogs. Oh my gosh. Like we're some of the best people too, right? That we take a little bit of time. (laughs) We're a lot. We're not for everyone. But those dogs get overlooked in that, oh, I'm just going to walk in and adopt a dog. If you're Mm -hmm. taking the time to get to know the dogs that are there and you're patient and you're staying curious about what might match you, you might literally find your soulmate dog. Yeah, I I really agree with that. I think that, you know, taking time, even if you don't go to volunteer, even just going and sitting in front of the kennels individually and visiting with the dogs and talking to them and petting them, or if the, the, they allow you to give them something for enrichment or if they let you go and take them into a playroom. I mean, now I kind of want to just go to the rescue and ask if I can start taking dogs for pup cups at Starbucks. But those are the kind of things that you need to do, like get out there, meet the dog, see what's available. And like you said, if they offer a weekend program, take the dog home for a weekend, see how it does in your house, see how you mesh with the dog. And if it doesn't work, then you can always try another one. In addition to that, choosing a dog, you need to be prepared for the dog when you get home. Like, you can't just say, I'm going to adopt a dog. This is what I did when I was 23. I just randomly adopted a dog, right? But thinking back and now being an adult and moving forward, you have to have things like a trainer picked out, a veterinarian picked out. You have to have food bowls. You have to have a leash and a collar and you have to know that you have a safe place to walk or play, go to the bathroom, all of those things. There's so many things about dog ownership that people don't see anymore because social media has kind of created this bubble of perfection of what dog ownership is. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do with this podcast. I'm trying to pop that bubble and remind people that this is a responsibility. This is work. It shouldn't be a chore. It shouldn't be stressful, even though sometimes it can be. And it's okay to be stressed out. And it's okay to be frustrated with your dog. And 
I want to just remove shame as an element in dog ownership. We need to support each other and help each other. And I think by opening the door and telling people, hey, it's okay to make mistakes, but let's take our time. Let's let's be prepared. Let's slowly invest ourselves in this world and, and make a difference for everybody versus getting a dog to fulfill an instant gratification need and then taking that dog to the shelter and then just recontributing to the problem all over again. Yes, absolutely. You know, for, for a lot of people, if it's their first dog, there's probably somebody in their life that is a dog person <laughs> that is that, that, that has gotten them to this point where they're like, I've never had a dog, but it's time. Right. And that, that, that person almost has a pretty big responsibility because they will have modeled to them you know, what it is to be a good guardian, what are all these components that are that are necessary. And, you know, there's a lot of you can Google things I need before I bring my dog home. Um, But but you're right, it's important to have at least done the research, right, at least understand what it what is going to go into this. And I think if you're if you're adopting an adult rescue, understanding decompression, understanding the rule of three, three, three and sort of how that factors in. And, you know, I do think that that number is a little bit misleading because we have dogs that blast through decompression in a couple of hours, a couple of days. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I've been here my whole life. And some, you know, that literally are going to take probably over a year to even be comfortable and confident and show show, um, you know, more more typical behaviors. Um, but I think just lowering, I think adjusting the expectations is the first step because mm -hmm. there is this, and I think social media has done, you know, played a big part in that of this before and after this razzmatazz, the, ma the magic, right. Of, <laughs> the of, luck. of yes. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, there is such thing as luck. People have, you know, well, my dog, my dog never used to do that. My, my dog never did. Well, lightning doesn't strike. Lightning doesn't strike twice. You're not going to get lucky twice. Mm -hmm. We all have that one dog that we had that was perfect and an angel and did nothing wrong, but that's all it was, was luck. And more often People have not, those? <laughs> yeah, people do have those. I had one of those. I've never had one of those. <laughs> it, it can happen, but more often than not, we're, we're really having to help our dogs understand how, how to live in our world because that's what it is. We're expecting them to live in our world instead of helping them. And I am constantly asking, asking guardians to see themselves as a director. And if their dog is the actor and they have to call cut because they're like, okay, I didn't like that take that that was not a wanted behavior. Okay. Show them what you'd rather them do. If you're mm -hmm. not then going in and giving the direction, how is their next take going to be any better? How is it going to be any closer to what you wanted them to do? If you didn't come in and say, okay, no, when you do this, I want you to face this way and talk this way. There there's, there's correction without direction which is, I think, leaving dogs confused. I believe that dogs are just confused more than, you know, intentionally disobedient. I completely agree with that. And that's going to be a whole nother episode. We're going to have you come back and talk with a, a, a blind interview and we can talk all about the training things. I will mention this now that Madison is a trainer and she does virtual training. So if anybody's interested in checking out her profiles on social media or her website, I'm going to provide all of that in our episode notes here for you. And if you have questions about 
rescuing in your area or how to find rescues in your area, you can always reach out to Madison or I, and we will be happy to try to help you go in the correct direction and find the right places for you. Uh, find the right places for you to appropriately volunteer, rescue, foster, adopt, whatever it is that you're looking for in finding your way to dog ownership. I think we're going to wrap up the episode with that. Do you have anything else that you want to add before we close up? I feel as as somebody who works within the industry, I feel especially drawn towards the rescue world because I was a person that needed to be given a second chance. And without that, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't be the person that I am. And I see that in each of these dogs, and I think that they're all worth it. And I know what it's like to feel disconnected from the dog in front of you and to not know how to step forward from that. And being able to help people and their dogs understand each other better is just, it's just the best feeling in the world. I have the best job in the world to be able to do that. I'm so lucky to be able to help people understand their animals better. And I'm just really grateful to be here and be chatting through all this with you. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. And one more note that I do want to make is that Madison and I have talked about potentially doing some virtual training with Fitz this winter. Uh, for enrichment ideas because he is a very active dog and winter kind of ruins his ability to go outside and play. So we might have to do a follow-up episode on that as well, where we talk about how Fitz did and how all of uh, that went. So thank you so much for being here and we can't wait to have you back next time. Thank you guys so much. Straight Up Dog Talk was created by Emily Breslin. It is edited, produced, and co-hosted by Josh Wasta under the supervision of Straight Up Dog Talk, LLC, and Emily Breslin. If you're enjoying this podcast, follow or subscribe to be sure you don't miss an episode and leave us a review on your favorite platform. Looking for more honest and relatable dog content? Check out our sister show, Unpacked, with Jerry Sheriff and Madison Simpson. Thanks for listening to Straight Up Dog Talk. See you next week.